fact, BC residents who have received a mixed dose of vaccine are being told that boosters at this time are not being considered when it comes to travel, to be able to travel to places that do not recognize mixed doses. Take a listen to this answer from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry when she was asked about this yesterday. In terms of the vaccine um, mix and match schedules and whether it's uh, Pfizer-Moderna, Moderna-Pfizer or AstraZeneca, these things are in flux around the world. So no, we're not systematically uh, requiring uh, or providing people with a third dose um, because we know that these are changing. We know that the U.S. regulations are changing and it's not that people are prohibited from traveling. It's that they may have restrictions on the things they can do when they travel. And those are things that that we are working very hard across the country, but also uh, with our counterparts at WHO, with the U.S., the CDC, to make sure that uh, the evidence that I showed today of how effective these schedules are and how protective these schedules are gets shared internationally um, and leads to us having a more harmonized approach to how we... we, um, to how we allow uh, immunization schedules to be used as proof of vaccination around the world. So these things are changing. They're changing uh, sometimes day by day. We know that. Um, and uh, what we need to do is is continue to be um, protected in where we are here. Um, and we're not systematically re- uh, providing a third dose for people just because of their desire for international travel. All right, that was Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. Let's bring in Len Saunders, Blaine immigration lawyer. Len, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, very well. How about you? Fine. So I find uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's uh, comment about a harmonized approach on the vaccinations. You know, if there was any harmonization between the two countries, the border would be open going into the U.S. So I'm very pessimistic on some harmonized approach on vaccination, um, this mixing matching of doses. And one of the things she said in there, too, was that it's not prohibiting people from traveling. It just means there will be more uh, things, perhaps hoops that you have to go through. But it's my understanding that come early November, and we don't know what the exact date is going to be, it will prohibit people from traveling to the United States if you have that mix and match vaccination record that's not recognized. Well, I I completely agree with you. The CDC right now has made no uh, comments on how they're going to roll out this, you know, vaccination requirements for flying into the U.S. You have to remember, Americans did not do any of this mixing. Say, I got, as you know, vaccinated very early on. I have Moderna for both. I don't know one single American or Canadian living on this side of the border who's been vaccinated, who did this mixing and matching, like what happened in most of Canada. So I think what you're going to see is the CDC is going to say, if you have two doses of this or two doses of that or two doses of this, you're good to fly. Well, so many Canadians are going to have one dose of one and one dose of another. So it's going to be prohibitive for them to fly to the U.S. Uh, There are 
provinces right now that are offering the booster shot specifically for the reason of travel. One of those is Alberta. If you look at the Alberta Health Services website, it talks about booster shots and who's eligible and travel is one of them. The problem with that is it's only Pfizer that's been approved at this point for the booster. But I know of people who are now planning to go to Alberta and get that third shot so they'll have uh, an AstraZeneca and two Pfizer's and doing that to make sure they're going to be able to travel to the United States. Oh, absolutely. So I think you're going to see a lot of people having to do that. It's interesting because I know a lot of Canadians who had their first shot, you know, in the lower mainland and flew down for their second one. Obviously not the same, you know, uh, dose or vaccination. So those people are going to be prevented from even flying in to get a second dose. If the land borders are still closed, which I'm assuming they're going to still remain closed because there seems to be no updates on that, and they can't fly unless they have, you know, two vaccinations of the same, you know, the same brand. Uh, which I think, too, and, and going on what I'm hearing about people doing here, going to other provinces, before the new rules come into place sometime in early November, there's a very good chance there are going to be people flying to Seattle, flying to other states where you can get a cheap airfare and getting that second shot. Or oh, absolutely. third, I guess. You're, you're, you're going to see so many snowbirders coming down here to do that or making travel plans in October when maybe they were going to fly down in November or December, they're going to want to be on this side of the border so they're not stuck because everybody has known about this flying loophole that there's really no restrictions on Canadian flying as long as you have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. This is a huge deterrent for people flying if they're not fully vaccinated. Whatever fully vaccinated is going to mean according to the CDC when they finally make that ruling. Uh, Do you think they they care enough? Are there enough Canadians that it makes a difference for the CDC or for the U.S. to even pay attention and think, oh, wait a minute, by bringing in this regulation, we are effectively banning this number of Canadians. And if they look at the evidence that shows mix and match is offering good protection, do you think they will care enough or that, that it will be even on their radar to fix it? Absolutely not. If they cared, the land border would be open right now coming in to the U.S. So many Canadians and even American politicians are screaming to get the land border open. And it seems like things are getting even tighter. So regardless of what the Canadian government does or says, I think the Americans are tone deaf right now. Are you hearing from people then as far as I know you have clients on both sides of the border, uh, hearing from people who are concerned about this? Oh, absolutely. I get I get a dozen calls a day. I've become a part-time travel agent. It's so confusing trying to keep up on a lot of these restrictions or these rumors. I just tell a lot of people, call the airlines because, you know, if you can get on the flight, you're good to go. It seems like the airlines are the only ones who may have the answers to some of these questions. Because come, and again, come early November, if this doesn't change, what do you think we're going to see as far as, I would imagine there are going to be some Canadians who aren't aware of this that maybe are trying to book and can't go, or there are going to be, like you said, this push of people that are going to try and go and beat the deadline. Oh, well, I think there's going to be a mass exodus of snowbirders coming down in the next month before, you know, this supposed November announcement or deadline Um, But it's interesting because, you know, going forward, it seems like what they're doing is, and I I watch the news up in D.C. every day, the vaccine passports to get into restaurants. 
you're going to see it now for sporting events, for traveling. You know, I'm I'm pretty certain the whole Nexus program is going to shut down, and they're going to come up with some vaccine passports. So I think this is just the beginning of a much more kind of extensive rollout in Canada and the U.S. requiring everyone to be fully vaccinated, but they're going to have to figure out the details. Otherwise, a lot of Canadians are going to be prohibited from flying to the U.S. Everybody knows you can fly, and everyone's been using that loophole. But that loophole, it looks like it's going to shut down pretty soon. And it's interesting because this whole announcement on flying, it seems to make for more consistent traveling to the U.S. Because in the past, many countries you couldn't fly from. If you were flying from, you know, the U.K. or, or, um, or, or Europe, you'd have to go to a third country like Canada or Mexico for 14 days so that you are now admissible. It, all of these loopholes seem to be now being taken away so that there's more consistent air travel, which is great for people coming from Europe and, and Asia, but it's going to definitely affect Canadians who really had no travel restrictions other than driving. Right. And just to, to clarify, too, it's not as though there's the choice that come after the restrictions come into place in early November. If you're a mixed vaccinated Canadian, it's not as though you have the choice to fly and quarantine. It's my understanding you're not going to be allowed to come into the States. Absolutely. The only people who can fly in who are vaccinated who will be allowed on the airplane are American citizens or permanent residents. Now, they still have to take the COVID test before they enter, and they're supposed to take a test after. But, you know, it, you know before you could come in and, and maybe quarantine, let's say you're going to Hawaii, you will not be allowed on that flight. So when you get to Vancouver Airport, you won't even make it to U.S. Customs because the airlines will say, sorry, you're not making it through security, period. All right. Well, we uh, hopefully uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's confidence uh, is true and that there will be a change, although it doesn't sound like uh, many people are sharing in that confidence as well. Len, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. You too. Well, earlier today, there was a technical briefing for the City of Vancouver's plan when it comes to a citywide parking permit system. Generally speaking, technical briefings aren't all that exciting, but if the City Council goes ahead and votes in favor of this, it will mean big changes for anybody that parks a vehicle or vehicles that has friends over that park vehicles on the streets in front of their households. So joining me to talk a bit more about this and And what it looks like is Sandy James, City Planning Consultant and Managing Director of Walk Metro Vancouver. Sandy, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks. How are you doing, Jill? Uh, Very well. How about you? Okay, thank you. Uh, This is something we've talked about before. It was, again, a technical briefing earlier today. It looks like the city is still going to be voting on a system where it would be $45 a year for the basic annual permit $500 extra if you have what's described as a moderate polluting new vehicle, $1,000 extra for a high polluting vehicle. Uh, The annual fee would be $5 for low income households and I believe $3 per night for people parking overnight. What are your thoughts on what's being proposed? That's correct, Jill. And what the city is doing, um, and I have to say city staff, especially the engineering staff, are exceptional at the city. But they're working with a very challenging council. And this council has a climate emergency action plan that they are trying desperately to fund. So what they've been looking for are mechanisms to fund the initiatives they want. And they believe they could get 20% from a parking program. 
Now, the tie-in between parking on a street and how that stops pollution is a little beyond me. I think charging for um, street rental for parking should be called street rental for parking, but I'll let that one go. What they're looking at is um, extending the parking program that's currently applied to 10% of residents in Vancouver to the entire city. Um, what they are expecting to get out of that is a revenue of $44 million to $72 million over four years. Uh, the startup cost for doing this, for getting um, the extra people that will have to administer it, they've already ordered special vehicles that have license sensing equipment on it. Uh, it's, it's going to be $1.8 million, and it will also cost another million dollars a year to administer. I, I like that you called it what it is, because I think that is one of the main questions people have is, so if I take my vehicle, if I'm lucky enough to have a garage and I park my vehicle in my garage instead of perhaps on the street, how am I lowering emissions? How on earth am I flighting, uh, fighting climate change by doing that? Um, Jill, you've hit the nail on the head, and that's where the basic inequity and where I'm troubled, where I think anybody that has a vehicle in Vancouver should and could or should be subject to a charge. But if you um, are lucky enough to have a garage or can park off the street, you have a get out of jail free card. And I would suggest that perhaps people that have uh, a nice garage would be the people that would have a huge gas emitting SUV. But the other challenge, Jill, and think of it, that by 2035, um, Canada said there's going to be no gas vehicles for sale, no new vehicles, and BC has said 2040. So in a way, this is a bit of um, an issue looking for a problem. Uh, It's going to be solved anyway. So talking about gas cars and EVs, um, it's just not something we should be, I believe personally, we should be sticking money into. But if we want to talk about curb space rental, let's call it that. Now, with that $44 million to $72 million over four years, the intent is to put it back into their other climate emergency action plan items. But the truth, and I was at council or working for the city for nearly three decades, is that money goes into general revenue. And whereas this council may say that's where the money may be going, that may not be what the next direction of the other council will be. Right. Uh, and also, when you talk about the 10% of residents that, that currently pay for parking, I'm in that group. I live in a right. place where parking is is premium uh, is for residents, for people visiting. I have no problem paying for that because I understand where I live is parking is it's hard to come by a lot of the time. But there are also two hour parking spaces in some spots and, and places where if somebody does have a friend over, has a caregiver over, has somebody come to dinner and leave their car, they can do that. So is it your impression that under this new system, with the $3 per night fee, with that, that's all going to go away? Uh, no, what they've done is they've rolled it back to you being able to park until midnight. After between midnight and 7, you're going to be required to pay a $3 fee. And if there's a caregiver, they're apparently going to have some system where they can reduce that, uh, that charge. But again, that's where... Um, it's not so much the sophistication, but the question is, why are we doing this in the first place? Uh, in the area that you live in, um, parking is is residential parking only, specifically to allow residents to park in. Um, there's many parts of the city that don't have that challenge. So part of it is, if it's a, a curb tax, call it a, ter- a curb tax and, and move on from there. 
Right, exactly. And you've written about this saying, yeah, call it a curb tax, call it a dirty fuel tax, call it what you want. But uh, it does seem strange because from what I understand too, Vancouver, if they go ahead with this, would be the only city in North America, maybe with the exception of New York City, that has citywide paid parking. That's correct. Um, And again, if this is truly about the Climate Emergency Action Plan, I would suggest that I I would like to see the stats and data that show me that the cars in Vancouver are causing the excess emission. Um, I believe it's really vehicles coming in and coming out. And this is, again, a a place where we should probably be talking regionally about how best to do um, transportation tax or a way of, of getting people to move into other modes of transportation. How do we make buses easier to get to? How can we make sure that every disabled person is able to get a handy bus? How do we make it more pleasurable to take a bus trip? And so I think those are more regional issues. But you have to also remember, this is the council that brought in an auditor general for $1.2 million annually, uh, which duplicates a lot of services that were already being looked at by the city, and also the same council that brought in the right for um, anyone with an electric vehicle in the city to place a court holder over the sidewalk, uh, which is going to be quite difficult for a lot of pedestrians and people using sidewalks. So it, it, it's, it's a bit of, um, it, we really need to call it what it is, and it really is a curb tax. Right, because again, and we used the example of if you simply move your, your brand new vehicle into your garage rather than the street, you're doing zero if it comes to reducing emissions. There are also people that, that would park on the street and maybe drive once every two weeks compared to, like you said, somebody who's coming in and out of the city or driving around, going driving several kilometers every week, which would have a much bigger footprint than the person who rarely drives, but that person would then be charged more simply for that, I like how you put it, the curb rental. Right. And I think I, I really want to say that the city staff is really noble and very hardworking, but they are responding to a council that's not looking at the bigger picture. This is really a regional issue. How do we improve transit, walking, biking, rolling? How do we make it easier not to use a vehicle? But you're right. I mean, on my block, most of the vehicles are out there and they're, they're, like, they're, they're there forever. They don't move. So it's really addressing if if we need to have more revenue in the city and the city wants to make the extra 44 million to 72 million dollars on a a curb tax call it that but on the other hand realize that a whole bunch of people that probably should be paying in there's an inequity in in homeowners that have their own garage not being um, being charged for it and i would also argue those are probably the people that will have the larger gas vehicles and again this applies to models of cars after 2023 and beyond Mm-hmm. And so, and at that time, um, as you already see, Ford has done this major shift in their factories. Um, there are not people producing gas cars now. So, um, again, it's, it's really, I think, a, a curb tax. All right. Sandy James, always great to chat with you and have you on the program. Thank you so much for being here. Have the best day, Jill. All right. You too. We started the show today talking with immigration lawyer Len Saunders. He joins the program from time to time, talking about what he's hearing about. He's based out of Blaine, and as expected, he is getting a lot of phone calls, a lot of email, mainly from Canadians wondering what is going to happen come November when the restrictions go into place as far as people flying to the United States having to be fully vaccinated if, in fact, the United States continues to not recognize mixed vaccination 
That's an AstraZeneca first, followed by an mRNA, if it doesn't recognize that as a fully vaccinated person. Well, let's bring in Valerie Crooks, professor in the Department of Geography at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I know you study this as well, or study specifically snowbirds and kind of the movement of people across the border, uh, Canada, Mm -hmm. the United States. Are you hearing from people or or do you think there is a lot of concern about this and the vaccine vaccine status, ah, status, sorry, when it comes to mixed (laughs) vaccines? That's okay. I mean, in terms of thinking about um, Canada's snowbird population, so in this case, we're talking about typically seniors who are retired, some of whom own properties in the United States or elsewhere abroad, um, often spend weeks or months um, elsewhere other than in Canada. I mean, these are people who are very closely following all announcements, including with regard to um, vaccination requirements, as well as any changes to the border crossing um, availability. Did you get the sense or or how big was the shift then where we were at, say, a a year ago heading Mm -hmm. to the United States? I know a lot of people did still go, even with some of the Mm -hmm. numbers in the States uh, a bit alarming. But do you think this is going to have a further impact on that? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because, you know, in in your comment, you just referenced last year. And so last year, the request was... Um, you know, do not go abroad unless you have essential travel. And there are many snowbirds who opted to go abroad, and this created a lot of sort of um, very negative attention focused on this group, many of whom really sort of said, we actually view this travel as essential. Many people go abroad because they feel that it improves their health. There are property owners who are going to maintain their properties. Um, And so then, you know, every time we've had a change in the kinds of border um, crossing requirements, so for example, earlier this year in terms of rolling out of the hotel quarantine and now again in terms of what your vaccination status is and also what you've been vaccinated with. This is a group who is following that closely and thinking on a daily basis, what does this new requirement mean for my ability to travel abroad? Right. And when you talk about that as well, last year, thinking back, it does seem like such a long time ago, the the advice was essential travel, but there was nothing stopping people from flying into the United States and from That's doing that. Right. That's right. So it, it was the request was to not go abroad um, for travel that was non-essential. And what we heard from many snowbirds is, again, they viewed this travel as essential. On, on the one end of the spectrum, you know, I think some people imagine snowbirds as living a fairly entitled and privileged life. For the past many years, I've actually been doing research with snowbirds. And one thing that I've found is that for a surprising number of people, it's actually part of a sort of economic strategy. So there are even more Canadians than we probably realize, older Canadians, who actually do things like live out of their RV throughout the year in Canada, in the warm months, in trailer parks that have seasonal rentals, and then in the United States, again, in places where there are seasonal rentals. And this sort of ends up being part of their retirement plan in order to make their dollars stretch farther. And so when you're thinking about a group like that, well, when you say do not go abroad unless travel is essential, for them, it is essential in their minds because this is part of their, their actual plan for retirement. Right. And I guess in that scenario, though, unless you were dual citizenship or had an RV on either side of the border, that wouldn't really be possible right now. Exactly. And so interestingly enough, we actually saw a lot of media attention bubbling up in the last year, even, for example, for uh, trailer parks in Canada that are typically seasonal that actually extended the months in which they were open so that um, older Canadians could actually stay 
uh, throughout the year uh, when normally they would be involved in seasonal travel. And there are other people who have been exploring ways to uh, fulfill the requirements of uh, border crossing, uh, but also um, enable their sort of annual travel. So, for example, shipping RVs and shipping cars across. This has been happening by Snowbird. And, you know, the, a lot of the media coverage and public attention that focused on this group last year, once again, was really sort of imagining this as a fairly privileged group. And I'm not trying to at all suggest that there aren't many Snowbirds who have a great amount of privilege and wealth. But, you know, there is a lot of variation among this group of, of older Canadians, some of whom actually travel abroad because the climate actually assists them with managing their everyday life and well-being while they're, they're abroad for the winter in warmer areas. Uh, right. And you mentioned or touched on this as well. Uh, you, what we might not think about, too, is cost of living and how cost of living is uh, for many for many things uh, where they're going in the United States is much more affordable. Exactly. So, for example, I've been doing research for the past many years. Oh. Sorry if you just heard that ding, but I've been doing research for the past many years in in the area around Yuma, Arizona. Um, There are people who actually will set up in the desert encampments, places where there are actually no um, parking stalls, where they're, they're basically... Uh, you know, roughing it throughout the winter, again, as part of this cost-saving strategy. There are also lots of large chain stores that allow snowbirds to park in their parking lots for very limited prices. Now, again, I just want to indicate that I'm, I'm making these points to help to show that there's a lot of variation in who snowbirds are and the kind of needs that they have um, and, and varying degrees of economic and financial resources. And some of those that were most affected by changes in the border crossing status were those for whom this is actually part of their sort of financial plan for their retirement. We're going to places where the cost of living is less expensive, avoiding the heating costs in the winter, for example, um, actually assist them with with maintaining um, a reasonable sort of quality of life through their retirement. What about also, I would imagine there's going to be a number in this group that we're also looking ahead, looking to this winter, thinking, okay, the vaccines will will be out, we will be fully vaccinated, this is going to help us to get back on track, To we're going to have to learn to live with this virus, learn to live with this pandemic, who are now realizing or finding out that if they don't, if they're a mixed vaccine, they got an AstraZeneca followed by an mRNA, at this point, the United States isn't going to recognize that and feel like they've either got to step things up or they're going to be left out. That's right. And, you know, uh, certainly this is coverage I've also been following. And there are many experts who are suggesting that they anticipate this to change and that it's quite likely that the U.S. government is actually working right now on figuring out what kinds of vaccines um, it's going to allow as it starts to open its borders to more international travel and not just Canadians who are potentially coming with mixed vaccination doses. But when you're thinking about snowbirds, I mean, this is, again, a group of people who typically um, plan for their travel many, many months in advance because you have to actually undertake a lot of things that that actually take um they're not necessarily time-consuming, but they take time to do. So, for example, even to be able to purchase travel medicine insurance, there are many people who, for example, will require uh, visits to their family physicians or maybe even specialists, sometimes even paperwork, uh, from their their doctors. And so this is a process that takes time. And so waiting on edge until, for example, maybe November, when there could potentially be a reversal of this, it actually affects some people's ability to go abroad for the entire season. Uh, do you think there will be a push or there'll be a, an increase in the number of Canadians of snowbirds who go to the United States with the idea of getting a booster shot there? 
Well, that's something that we certainly saw last year. We saw a number of Canadians who were in Florida who took advantage of of becoming vaccinated earlier than they would have if they were here in Canada because Florida initially opened its uh, its vaccination rollout based on age, but not necessarily the location of residence. And so um, there are many Canadians who actually received the first and maybe even second dose while in Florida, um, Canadian snowbirds. And so I think, again, this is another example of Snowbirds looking to potentially, while they're abroad, benefit from um, the type of strategy that's being enacted in the United States. Although at the same time, they're going to have to think very carefully about the risks. Many of the most popular destinations for Canadian snowbirds are not faring very well um, in terms of where they're at with managing the pandemic. And so that's going to involve a lot of really careful consideration. But one thing I know from from my years of talking to snowbirds is that many snowbirds are used to thinking really carefully about risks, including health risks, before they go abroad. It's not uncommon for snowbirds to be managing even multiple health conditions. Um, And so they think really carefully. And so although I think that last year the pushback from Canadians was like, why the heck did you go? For many snowbirds, it was a contingency to be planned for, just as many other health conditions um, or other emergencies that could arise while they were abroad are other things that they plan for routinely. And I think, too, given the what, the rules that were in place last year with quarantine, I would imagine a lot of snowbirds would argue that even after being gone for four months or five months or for whatever amount of time, uh, if they were following the rules and being respectful of others and uh, making sure to stay as safe as they could, they really weren't putting other Canadians or other people at risk. Well, this was, uh, you know, a very strong sentiment coming from snowbirds because, of course, many were returning just at the point that the hotel hotel quarantine requirements were put in place here in Canada. And there was a large pushback from the snowbird community, um, many of whom said they felt that their um, habits and activities while they were abroad was actually were actually keeping them safer than had they come to Canada. Um, And so, for example, being able to have outdoor recreational opportunities as opposed to, you know, having to go to your indoor recreation center while you've caught five feet of snow outside of it if you're living in Winnipeg, for example. And so this was actually one of the arguments that was coming from that community who lobbied very, very hard to be able to receive exemptions, which, as we know now, did not happen. Do you think snowbirds were anticipating more collaboration between the United States and Canada? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I'm not sure actually what snowbirds would have anticipated in that regard. You know, one of the things that I've heard from many snowbirds um, in particular, now the United States is not the only destination, but certainly the most popular destination for Canadian snowbirds. Um, And often when you're there, you're in a little bit of a bubble. It can be hard to actually decipher or stay on top of the Canadian news um, unless you're very closely following it on your own apps and your own personal devices. Um, And so I think that it was, it took many people by surprise in terms of what was happening uh, even the announcement around the, the closing of the border and the request for Canadians to come home and the ability to get that information, um, I think, was was very challenging for, for some snowbirds. And so, you know, maybe they were wishing for uh, better channels of information flow, you know, and that's a little bit separate from thinking about a conversation about cooperation. Uh, but I know now that we're at this point in the pandemic, there are many snowbirds who are disappointed that there's not a greater amount of cooperation as for what you've said, especially around those who own homes, some of whom have had their homes shut or shuttered for now two winter seasons. Uh, you know, anybody who's listening to your program right now who owns a home or who rents um, 
some form of accommodation will know that there's always kinds of tweaks, maintenance, things that you have to do to take care of a property, of a house. You know, here we're talking about Canadians in much warmer climates. Uh, you know, things in warmer climates can can actually unfold quite quickly. Um, and so, you know, there have been many people who've had to figure out how to accommodate maintaining their residences while not actually being able to be present. And that aspect of the lack of coordination and for what many people see as kind of a a disjuncture in terms of what you're allowed to do by plane versus what you're allowed to do by land um, as being another point of frustration and that lack of sort of coordination. All right. We will leave it there, Valerie. Thank you so much, though, for joining us today. You're welcome. Well, some of the modeling numbers that were released yesterday during the COVID-19 news conference show that COVID cases among school-aged children are rising. That following the return to school. This is information that shows as of mid-September, those 5 to 8 years old and those 9 to 11 are actually leading the way when it comes to transmission of the virus. We don't have similar information for those uh, up until the age of 4, those below the age of 4. And while the cases are continuing to go up in those age groups, the rate of hospitalization continues to remain very low. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Caroline Colane, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. Good afternoon. What are your thoughts on this? I imagine it's it's not a surprise that the return to school for groups of people that are not vaccinated sees an increase in cases. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we know that almost all the cases overall are in people who are unvaccinated. And that's an age group where they all are because they're not eligible yet. And also they spend time together in groups where everyone, because they're all the same age, they're also unvaccinated. I think it is worrying the steepness of that rise in that age group. And I think it you know, really means we should be looking out for what's going on this year which might look really different from last year uh, because Delta is more infectious and it might uh, spread differently than what we saw last year. And because, you know, we have communities where there are relatively high rates of transmission and that can bring those exposures into the schools. And should we be looking more, though, at the numbers of that we anticipated there would be an increase in cases, but we're really focused on hospitalization as well and the severity of it? So I think that is important. Uh, What we're seeing right now is um, with cases mainly in people who are not vaccinated, of course, the vaccine hasn't protected those individuals because they they haven't had it. So their rates of hospitalization will be similar to what they were with Delta um, in the over the past month. Um, Kids, of course, are at lower risk of hospitalization, but it's not no risk. And kids also, you know, they can still have other impacts of COVID and they can still expose the adults that they live with, um, who they need, their their kids, they need adults in their lives, obviously parents, grandparents, teachers. So, so I do think, you know, kids are important. It's important to know what's happening with schools and with kids uh, for the protection of our broader community, as well as for the kids themselves. And how concerned should we be with the numbers showing kids that are infected, passing it on to, like you said, parents or grandparents, other people in their families who might be vaccinated but are still getting it and in turn perhaps passing it on as well? Right. I mean, exactly. So schools are part of our communities and kids are are part of our communities, too. And, you know, if we want to protect those communities, Um, Of course, getting adults vaccinated is a huge goal, and and hopefully we can combat misinformation and and maybe get people thinking. You know, I think people may 
look at the vaccines and there's a lot of stuff out there about risks of vaccines, but people aren't maybe thinking always about the risks of COVID and a lot of, you know, the, the highest risk groups are the very elderly, but the risk in normal adults is actually way worse than the risk of a vaccine. So hopefully we can protect adults with vaccination, kids with vaccination, um, hopefully if it gets approved. How much of a, a game changer will it be? Uh, we know uh, that uh, I, th- I believe it was Pfizer that said it has submitted uh, its work as far as uh, a dose that would work for children in that age group, I think five to 12. How much will that change things, do you think, once that group is able to get vaccinated? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you know, there's a lot of uncertainties there, some of which we'll be able to answer if we do high quality monitoring around what's happening with that age group and, and transmission in schools. But, you know, about 36% or something of our unvaccinated people are in that young age group uh, under 10. Vaccinating that group, of course, it won't be, it'll be 5 to 11 probably first, um, will be a huge, potentially a huge game changer in just building that population level of immunity so that, you know, maybe we can get to 95% of our whole population immunized. Um, and I think that's that's what we need to do. That's where we need to go if we possibly can. To 95%. Well, I mean, there's, we don't have like one number where, okay, right. once we get to this number, it's great. Because, you know, different populations differ and the virus changes in different, there's different risk in different settings and workplaces and stuff. Um, but we do know that, you know, Delta is so infectious that we're not going to get sort of 80% or 85, it's going to be enough. And then it dies out so, so low that the the rest don't get exposed. It's likely that most people will get immunity either the easy way or the, the hard way by getting COVID. And so we really need to move to a place where the people who are not protected are so few in numbers that we don't overwhelm our healthcare systems um, as COVID goes through. And, you know, I think that's that move to the endemic mode and move that transition that they've been talking about but we we won't get there without a lot more immunity in the population than we have even now even though we have so much vaccination out there and when you talk about the natural immunity and i know we've talked about this and have shown information that it's not as great as being immunized but if we're talking about this age group in schools that are now kind of leading the way as far as infections would that not lead us to a place where even without vaccinating children or or as we wait for the vaccinations for children to be approved if this group is getting covid at this larger rate is there not then going to be some kind of a more natural immunity as well in children? Uh, yeah, there would be. Um, but we don't want to get there by giving all our kids the Delta variant COVID in order to get there. Uh, that's, it's still basically it's too much. It's too many kids. Um, and, I, and I think even at that low, you know, maybe it's one in 200 needing hospital care. That's still, you know, one or two kids out of every um, elementary school, an average size of, of three or four hundred students. So, you know, I think that it is low risk. It's much lower than an adult, but it's not a risk that we necessarily want to have for our kids if vaccination is an option or if we can prevent cases by simple things like keeping windows open and wearing masks. You know, those are preventive preventive measures that um, should be relatively easy to do, that we are doing, that we know work, and we can do that and hope and, and vaccinate our adults to get those community cases down. Communities with very high vaccination rates have very low case numbers, and that will prevent 
um, those introductions into schools, hopefully for a long time and hopefully for long enough that we can start to vaccinate. You mentioned masks, and I know we've changed as well as far as the exposure reporting. But at this point, it's just the Vancouver School Board that has voted to go and make masks right across for all of the grades, including K-3. to Do you think it would be, make a difference if that was the rule in place for all students in the province, K-3? to I think it probably would. You know, I would say the most important places to be making protection, protections like that, uh, putting those in place are really where vaccination numbers are lower in adults because that is where exposures are more likely just because or, or even also where community transmission is higher in, in the overall community, which in turn is connected to vaccination. Just because if we can not introduce COVID to those settings to schools, then, you know, that's the prevention right there. Then the masks, windows open, the distancing, the hand washing, these are all layers of protection on top of that. And I think at this point, with those very steep rises, we do need to be looking at at combining those. And that's what they're doing with the, I think, with the measures in in Fraser East is really trying to limit that transmission, protect the healthcare system and protect communities. Hopefully, while we continue to make vaccination available and, and get vaccination rolled out because it really is the, the best tool that, that we have, certainly the, the main tool that we're using. And what are your thoughts just generally on the numbers where we are right now at the vaccination rates, at the infection rates? Are you surprised at all at where we are or is this kind of what we expected? Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a little surprising that the numbers are holding as steady as they are. You, these pro, you know, it's a process where People who are infectious, unfortunately, make new infections and they make new infections. It's sort of fundamentally an exponential process, which doesn't usually just kind of doesn't have a natural, like stable point right now. That's the endemic mode we hope to get to where it just sort of is ticking along as a low level of cases. That's a little surprising. I'm not surprised that we're seeing rises in unvaccinated populations, including kids, but also in other unvaccinated groups and we're not because they're not identified by age you know and and put in the picture we don't necessarily see that but i think there probably are rises in some areas in unvaccinated groups and that's not surprising just because we know delta is so infectious and we know that having even 80 percent of our adults vaccinated leaves 13 percent who are not and that's you know 10 percent of bc is 500,000 people so it's it's actually a lot of people and then when you put the the age mixing together, then yeah, that does lead to this. But it's great that we're not at the level uh, you know, that of healthcare use that Alberta is at. And I think that's partly because of our mask mandate and our vaccine card and our higher levels of vaccination, of course, play into that. All right. Caroline Colane, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Take a listen to this story. It is out of the United States, but we're going to talk about some similar happenings here in B.C. as well. The United States government is declaring almost two dozen birds, fish and other species extinct. It's a rare move for wildlife officials to give up hope on a specific plant or an animal, but scientists who have made the declaration say climate change threatens to make extinctions more common as it adds to the pressures facing several different species. The declaration from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that a species has completely died out frees up funds to help protect endangered birds, fish and plants, possibly saving them from the same fate. And indeed, since 1975, 54 species have left the endangered list after recovering, including the brown pelican, the humpback whale, and a symbol of American resilience, the bald eagle. 
That is reporter Jim Ryan. Urbanization, water pollution and logging are also being cited as some of the factors behind this latest and largest batch of extinctions. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what's happening here and the warming climate when it comes to local salmon habitat projects. John Barker is joining me now. Director and past president of the West Vancouver Streamkeepers Society. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, it's got to be alarming to you and concerning to you uh, to hear reports like that and to hear about species that are being declared extinct. Yeah, it's staggering. And uh, you're quite right about climate change. It, it, it plays into this at an accelerating rate, um, something none of us anticipated years ago. What's happening with uh, a couple of projects, one in particular, talking about the salmon project taking place in Lawson Creek in West Vancouver. I understand that it has hit some pretty troubling times. Well, we've been working on the project with the municipality uh, and fisheries for seven years. We got our first concept plan prepared by the Resource Restoration Unit. DFO people at Anasis Island uh, to put a, a side channel uh, around the flume which carries the main flow of water of Lawson Creek and we've been working on that as I said for seven years trying to bring that fruition and, it, it, and it's really habitat for returning adult uh, salmon to spawn. It's also rearing habitat for juvenile coho as well as home for resident cutthroat trout. And it's down near the mouth of the creek where it, before it flows into the ocean through a small park area adjacent to the flume. And uh, through one reason or another, which I'm happy to explain, we've decided to cancel that project uh, principally because of events arising out of um, climate change. Yeah, please do. So climate change led to this. So what specifically happened? Well, our water levels, of course like all over the province through the summer with the extended drought period and lack of rain and, and uh, dropping water levels. Uh, we've had sufficient water in that flume over the over years past where we're able to run a creek, uh, have the creek run steadily. And uh, the creek did not dry up, but if you can believe it dropped in the flume, which is basically an open box culvert with a flat bottom. We were running with an inch of water over a wetted area of about 30 centimeters. And and uh, just uh, amazing. You say, say to yourself, well, how's this going to sustain a creek? And it, it can't sustain a creek, cannot sustain fish. And the clear answer is in, in, in shorter, no, it can't. And these these this is rearing habitat for juvenile coho that will live in fresh water for a year before they go to sea. And I've heard of other difficulties take the Mamquam River up in Squamish where they ran into this they had rearing habitat and then we have side channels as well which run parallel to the creek but they take they, they, they take water from the creek run it through the channel and out and, up and back into the creek and it creates more rearing habitat and those have been so successful over the years but this year they dried out and they they, they lost fish and they they have moved fish and then the areas they moved them they started to dry again. So this is not uncommon throughout the province where habitat has been built and now it's being starved of water, things we've never seen before. Are there other places that you could try and rebuild or try and shift these types of projects to? 
Yeah, that's that's quite true. We, we've done uh, five major projects in West Vancouver. Uh, the first and major one was a memorial park, or a, a similar side channel that, that comes out of McDonald Creek and back in again. And uh, that was built in 2012, round numbers, $100,000, which we raised all the money. As I said earlier, we work with the district, but stream keepers, who are all volunteers, raised the money to do it. And that was has been tremendously successful and is still operating perfectly. We've done estuary enhancement projects. And the next big one, which we hope to shift the money that we had raised for this, uh, this side channel for Lawson Creek, we hope to shift that to Cypress Creek where we can uh, do a stream enhancement, something called a Newberry Weir, where you perch the, the level of the, of the stream up so fish can get past a, a barrier to, to them advancing further upstream. So we, we look after 22 creeks and tributaries in West Vancouver as West Vancouver stream keepers. So we're busy people, but uh, there's always work to be done. And we just take two or three projects at a time and keep advancing them. And when we talk about climate change and what led to this particular development, are we? can we specifically say it was the heat dome that we saw at the end of June or was that part of a growing pattern? Well, it's... It, it's the two elements which are hand in hand. One is is the the heat. Um, as soon as you start to heat up waters, and I'm sure most people in the province are aware of the Fraser River and the sockeye trying to advance. There's enough challenges anyway. But when the creek temperatures start to exceed 20, 21 degrees, it it starts to become perilous for for salmon. They become lethargic. They they they're not advancing. They're holding. And the same happens on a smaller scale with our streams. If you've got water that's, that, that's elevated temperatures, you're going to have fish in trouble. And then coupled with those temperatures uh, it is also the, the reduced flow because of, uh, of the drought period. We, you know, we went from June the 15th with, with the last rainfall. And the, the photograph that I put out on our press, press release was taken on August the 5th. And that's when we're down to an inch of water in a creek. That's uh, that's that's so dramatic, and 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 I'm so pleased that we our society made the decision to to set that as that project aside. It it, it would be not be a, a good outcome. We we feel it's got to be upsetting, like you said. Streamkeepers are literally looking at dozens of streams are involved in these projects, and then to see something like this happen, what what kind of bigger picture outcome is there, or or I guess why is it so important that you do have these projects on these streams and these waterways? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, the, the urbanization has, has, has uh, through no will or want on anybody's part, has obviously had a big impact on, on streams. Anytime you're building residential uh, areas up and, and you start losing, losing that pervious surface, you've got roadways, sidewalks, all the things that cause water to dash immediately into the creeks. So your creeks come roaring up in a rain event and then they drop way down. There's none of this nice, slow filtering process going on. So, so that's just an example of, of what we're facing. So a lot of it has to do with urbanization. But we've got stewardship groups throughout the province. It's just about every stream I can think of in the province, coastal streams, Haida Gwaii, interior. You think about salmon touching probably two-thirds of the province. And, uh, and so the stewardship groups 
working as string keepers, most of them using that name and their title. There's 22,000 of us in British Columbia, 22,000 volunteers. Don't charge fisheries a penny, but get supported from them in, in small grants and, uh, and, and in, in, in good science that all our projects have to meet their, their, their requirements. It's a fantastic process, but it, the urgency to keep going is if we if we back away then it's it's how can that how can that be the right solution we just have to keep at it and maintain the same passion for this uh this work that we've been doing for years and i know we've been focused and talking about salmon and, and specifically salmon in these streams but there must be a domino effect as well or it must have an impact on other species as well oh heavens yes I mean, we know the interrelationship of salmon coming up a stream, dying. The nutrients go into the stream. Animals will drag them off into the forest, and the nitrogen can be found in the trees. It's just, it's just amazing how, how interconnected everything is. And uh, the insect life that's required to support salmon and, and the, 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 just all the things that are going on within a creek are so critically important that it's imbalanced. And if you absent the salmon... Well, that's that that starts to have a huge impact on on, on the rest of the system. Uh, do you think we pay enough attention to what's happening on that level uh, in streams? As a, we tend to talk about fishing, we talk about full-grown salmon. Uh, we've talked about that, but do we pay enough attention to this vital part? Well, I would say that's changed a lot, it, it, it favorably in, in the years I've been involved with this. I, I I've, I've been. A, quite an area of salmon volunteerism uh, for many years now. And I, I see more emphasis by, by local governments, uh, particularly, you know, we didn't have environment managers specifically for various areas. And we do today. Uh, provincially, they're on side with and federally. And the challenge is, is being able to manage it all and, and see success and see the results. And what we've experienced here, which, which should have been a, a go-ahead, slam-dunk, uh, it'll-work project, is all, already just suddenly in jeopardy. And it just leaves us a lot of it struggling with that, that thought that we could have built it five years ago and, and we would, we, we, it may not have worked. So with it, that came about as a difficult time and a difficult one for our, for our, our team uh, as, as we worked through that. All right. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time with us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, here is a story that will very likely inspire you. A couple of BC students are finding some success, and this is all to do with a process they created, and it takes waste paper and turns it into sprout eco-friendly products. So how does this work? Well, Kevin Zhang is a grade 12 student at St. George's School in Vancouver, co-founder of the business called Dublo Solutions. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, So how did you even get started doing this? Yeah, um, well, my partner Alyssa and I, Alyssa's in university, by the way, uh, we are basically founding this company based on a vision of disrupting, creative, disruptive, sustainable change in our communities. And, you know, especially in COVID, there's so many wastes going to, you know, the landfills. And we're just so saddened to see that the, the garbage and, you know, this recycling even that we throw in the recycling bins, when they're supposed to be, you know, uh, be reused again, we're not being able to uh, continuously recycle these products. 
And when they are going to landfills, we found that, you know, we have to do something about it. We have to do, we have to create a solution for that problem. And hence, uh, Sprout, which is our product, is a biodegradable material within grain seed that germinates into plants after use. Huh. So I guess the, the difference there is a lot of people maybe would have noticed that, would have seen that, would have even had that thought, hey, we should really do something about this. This isn't right. Yeah. But the difference being you actually did something. Yeah, I mean, um, what we wanted, I never really thought of myself as, you know, someone who would create uh, something new, right? Um, but it was this experience that I, um, that I had in grade 10, which is like, you know, two years ago. Um, it's hard to think of, like how much I've come since that time. Um, I met Alyssa during a company program uh, called Junior Achievement, and we basically uh, became friends then, and we wanted to start something that is, you know, eco-friendly because uh, that was also the time when COVID hit. And um, we wanted to, you know, we want to establish something that can make it fun for people to be eco-friendly, right? Um, to create something that is not expensive because a lot of the eco-friendly products in the market right now are, you know, costing a lot of money. And what we're providing to people is made from waste and is viable for people to use. You know, for example, right now we're using, uh, we're creating coffee sleeves for cafes like Storm City Coffee on West Broadway, uh, Beyond Bread on 4th Avenue, and um, we're selling, you know, close to 400 units so far. Uh, it has been two months and we're almost raising $1,000 for a charity that we're donating to supporting homeless youth. Hmm. So, but how did you actually go from having the idea and thinking, OK, I know what I can do. I can make this biodegradable material with seeds in it that germinates, that becomes plants afterwards. How did you go from having that idea to actually mm-hmm. making it happen? Yeah, so we had the idea originally from, you know, uh, just us using a lot of paper because we're, we're high school students. We have a lot of uh, homework. We have a lot of tests and exams. And the paper just, you know, go into the garbage cans after. And that is really what propelled us to start on this mission. And we basically had to test out a lot of, you know, these different uh, materials with paper, especially when it's recycled paper. It requires a lot of binding strength with the paper fibers. And we wanted to... Uh, test that out. So we're fortunate enough to have more, uh, to have two mentors, Mark Betteridge and Alwyn Slabbert, who are uh, both in Vancouver right now to guide us through this process. And where did you get the seeds from? The seeds, we're getting it from local um, local farms. And what we're doing is we want to keep this um, local. We want to create local circular economies, basically saying that um, the waste go into viable products and um, the, the viable products come turn into waste and that cycle generates again. So um, we, we just wanted to keep um, things local to start with and building off from there. And you may have touched on this, but the seeds that are in the biodegradable material, what do they grow into? Yeah, um, so we have a lot of varieties with the seeds. It really depends on what the cafe is and what, we, what the customers prefer. So some of the seeds, they turn into herbs. Some seeds turn into tomatoes, you know, bok choy, and um, snapdragons, actually. So currently we're selling these. It's um, mainly based on seasonal, um, you know, temperature-wise and, um, and uh, the locations. So um, that's why we're offering these different types for people who prefer different types of seeds. So it, would it work then, a consumer goes into one of these coffee shops, gets a coffee or tea, a hot beverage, gets the sleeve, and then is it up to the consumer, though, takes that sleeve afterwards, and rather than throwing it away, you plant it? Yeah. So that's um, the eco-friendly part that the consumers are contributing to. Basically, uh, instead of throwing these sleeves away along with the cups, 
um, like most people usually do, they can take it out and plant it at their homes where the paper biodegrades into the soil and the seeds grow into plants. However, even if they throw it into, you know, um, into the cans, uh, garbage bins, the seeds, um, they won't germinate. However, the paper will biodegrade because of our um, sustainable nature. It's biodegradable in itself. So even if you're not interested in, in growing something after using it, if you are, you, could, you can throw it into the, the food bin. Yep, for sure. Uh, do you have plans then to expand this or what's next? Definitely, yeah. Um, currently, we're just starting off with, you know, a lot of uh, manual process when baking it because we're high school students. We don't have a lot of, you know, money in our hands and we're working hard to, you know, uh, to create these materials and to supply um, these eco-friendliness to our wider communities. Currently, we're developing a brand new material for packaging using mycelium, which is a root structure for a fungus. And with that, it is also, you know, supernatural in the environment and is dark biodegradable too. So we tested it out. Um, it has been, you know, um, a few months since we done our first trial and we're still working hard on making that happen, you know, uh, and disrupting the, pa- uh, the packaging industry. You mentioned the cost too, that they, or that you've been able to sell so however many units of this. Do you think it does it add to the cost then, or or as far as if businesses that are using these? I'll use the coffee sleeve as an example. Uh, does do you think is there a, a hefty cost to this, or will that be passed on to the consumer? Yeah. Um, so there's actually no cost for the businesses to accept our offer because what we're doing is. We're putting our stock in the shops to sell and the customers, they buy it instead of, you know, getting a free sleeve. Although it would be, you know, slightly of a financial burden on the customers, they're contributing um, to this overall eco-friendliness. And um, by doing so, we're wanting the customers to realize that, um, you know, although it is not very, uh, it's not extremely easy or free to be eco-friendly. However, you can still take small incremental steps to make that happen. It's just it sounds like such a great idea and that people Thank would you. <laughs> that people would would want to be part of this for sure. What kind of reaction have you had from people? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's been really hard especially during the covid times to get, you know, cafes to work for us uh to to be working with us because you know, we're high school students and we you know, we're, we're not adults yet. We're still learning things. So, uh first of all, it really takes some time to have the adults, you know, get used to talking to us, right? Um, but also, uh, how do we get these, you know, cafes uh, to to implement this product? Because these cafes, their reactions initially are like, oh, this is cool, this is interesting, but do we really need it? Um, and, you know, to be honest, is not like, you know, life essential. However, if we look at the long-term um, goals of, you know, British Columbia, especially Vancouver, such a sustainable city, with a lot of eco-conscious people, um, the customers will be happy to um, to embarge, to um, to join this mission on eco-friendliness, and the cafes are happy to be on board. And just one other question, but the and again, looking mainly at the coffee sleeve, how long did it take to figure out, or, or did you have to do a lot of trial and error to come up with a sleeve that protected people's hands, was easy to grasp, or how did you kind of come up with that? Oh yeah. Um, hundreds of uh, trials and errors and failures. You know, we've been doing some of these at uh, my friend Alyssa's garage uh, during the summer, which is super hot. You know, this summer is like over 30 degrees. And what we have been trying to do is that um, we wanted first to isolate one variable at a time and just to test them out first. For example, we test out the fiber strength and try to make that the strongest possible. 
then after we got in that, we reached that goal, we decided to test out, you know, how, how comfortable does it feel? Uh, how much more comfortable does it feel compared to the normal coffee sleeves and how biodegradable it is? So, you know, it's a lot, it's a long process. However, uh, we finally got to where we're at right now and we're happy to be, you know, driving this sustainable change. All right. Well, I look forward to see what you come up with next. We'll leave it there. But Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Joe. All right. That is Kevin Zhang, one half of the two BC students. They have found some great early success in what they have developed. They've taken waste paper, turning it into sprout, eco-friendly products such as coffee sleeves, coasters that have seeds in them. If you want to check it out, you can go to their website, dublosolutions.com. That's D-U-B-L-O Solutions, S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S.com. And you can read all about the company and their philosophy and those products. Again, what great work.